Oh man, yeah, we're uh, full swing Christmas time. How's it going with you? It's it's fine. I'm just hanging out in my basement billiards room, staring at the giant tiger mural. Oh, hold on, somebody's at the door. Give me just a second. Ah, it's just these fucks again. Never mind. Oh man, those carolers again. Can't believe they're back. But either way, no more interruptions. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get this uh, Christmas episode going. Oh wait, bells. I think one of my cats is outside. Here, hold on. Like, let, let me get up and I'm gonna go check. I'm gonna open up the front door. Tell my cat inside. Derek, are you not wearing clothes, bro? Put some. Uh, no, put it, some clothes on. It's okay. I always answer the front door completely naked. Anyway, um, the fuck. Hey, Lola, are are you out here? Come on in, kitty. Shit. Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, Aaron, your movie monster boy, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. And once again, what is that? Jingle jingle, it's motherfucking Christmas time, and we are going to be discussing a Christmas classic, Silent Night, Deadly Night, from 1984, directed by Charles Sellier. So, before we do that, Derek, how are you? How are things? Man, is it just me, or do, like, serious horror Christmas movies hit real hard and mean? Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You said you wanted something a little darker and more serious this year, so, uh, here you go. Here's one with basically zero levity and humor to it. Yeah, yeah. At least least intentional humor. Yeah, this and Black Christmas, man, if you want to really ruin Christmas for your family, just put this on (laughs) back-to-back. Or just go visit Grandpa, who's got (laughs) dementia and is terrifying yeah yeah so off recording i texted aaron after watching the movie being like this is just thanks grandpa the movie (laughs) thanks grandpa my take on it and we can get going with this a little bit further but uh my take on it is that this is just the origins of christmas batman right (laughs) (laughs) so anyway yeah we are going to be getting to that movie in just a bit first we've got some recommendations so derek we will start with you what have you got for us this week so I only have three recommendations. Two of them are once again music because just out of all the things, forms of art media I can consume right now with taking care of an infant daughter and a new house, music is the easiest because I can just kind of put it on the background while I'm doing stuff. So uh, yeah, I've been, it's pretty much since Halloween, I've been trying to listen to creepier things, more horror related kind of music out there. And I'll start off with one that I brought up in passing in the past. I have actually been listening to the Doom Eternal soundtrack. Now, granted, I have recommended the Doom from 2016 soundtrack i could have sworn we've talked about this a few times already yeah like i've mentioned the doom eternal soundtrack not being quite as good but still like decent but like i never really gave it the old college try i guess and i've been having it on the background for the better part of a week now and i do still stand by that i do still think it's not quite as impactful as the doom 2016 soundtrack and it is still kind of a bummer everything that happened with mick gordon the composer just kind of brief touch on that apparently he butted heads with id software the the people who made doom and doom eternal apparently he could he was bad about not making deadlines constantly asking for extensions um i think with the doom eternal soundtrack he recorded everything but he still hadn't mixed everything so they like sort of fired him off from the project towards the end and like had another person come and mix his recordings 
things for the game. Sure. So I think that's also part of the reason why I like the literal sound of the Doom Eternal soundtrack isn't quite as crisp or good as, as the Doom 2016. But this soundtrack still kind of kicks ass. It's still very much a nod to industrial metal and a little bit of some cyber metal, some dark ambience, even electro industrial, just like Doom 2016. It's basically the same thing. He does get a little more experimental with the soundtrack because it almost feels like this one is a little more tied into the story of Doom Eternal than the Doom soundtrack was to Doom, even though there's not much more story beyond. They found a portal to hell on Mars and then they want to mine hell for its energy source. Oops, demons. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh... I still have not played any of those games yet, and so I didn't realize it was basically just, you know, unobtainium. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's basically just like evil corporate douchebags discover like a portal to hell, and the first thing they say is, instead of just ignoring it or sealing it, we're gonna mine it for resources. (laughs) We found oil on hell. I guess we're ready for another 10-year war, boys. Well, and that's kind of the plot of the original Doom and Doom 2, because then like Doom 2, demons invade Earth while in Doom Eternal same thing happens uh, they're now on earth but don't they like go to heaven in this one hey, maybe in the dlc like i think the dlc has to do with not just demons but i couldn't tell you okay. i'll admit i still haven't played doom eternal i was about to say like you said cyber metal and the only thing i could think of was the matrix just Rage Against the Machine, right? But that's the thing. There, There is a little bit of that in this game. Like, I, I think the soundtrack's a little more experimental than the original one was, for better and for worse, because, like, the original one was straightforward to the point and fucking kicked ass start to yeah. finish. But I was just thinking, like, that with Jingle Bells, because it's all in <laughs> heaven. So yeah. my, my mindset was like, oh, this will be perfect for Christmas time. Again, no. <laughs> I have no idea what this game's about. <laughs> no, it's still very much like dark, technical, uh, industrial metal. Okay. It is a lot of the same sound of the original. It's Mick Gordon still. The soul of Mick Gordon is still very much on this, this soundtrack. I will say, if there's one song that's kind of right up there with Rip and Tear and BFG Division from the first soundtrack, it's this track called The Only Thing They Fear Is You. That track is probably the the most well-known one from the Doom Eternal soundtrack, and for good reason. It kicks a lot of ass. But it is interesting to see like the small detailed differences that in different places they go in with this soundtrack. It seems like he makes an earnest effort to expand and experiment a little bit more, um, but still kind of keep the essence of Doom 2016 soundtrack. And listen, like if you haven't listened to Doom 2016 soundtrack either, go listen to both of them. Start with 2016, then listen to Doom Eternal. It's good shit. It's good metal to like take a shotgun and shove it into a demon's throat and pull the trigger and blow their head off type music. Or just go to the gym. Or just go to the gym, yeah. And, you know, I, I still love that joke. I, I mentioned it back when I recommended the Doom soundtrack. I'll mention it again. I do think the Doom games are horror games. It's a horror game and that you are playing the horror. And if you want a good break from, like, demonic horror where you want to feel like you're actually, like, kicking the shit out of the forces of hell, well, Doom and Doom Eternal are should scratch that itch. My next recommendation 
Edition, and I think I'm going to give this kind of the Halloween treatment. And this is an artist that both you and I listen to, Aaron. So I know you'll have a little bit to talk about this as well. I decided I want to listen to more Chelsea Wolfe. Sure, uh, I want to kind of go through her discography because I've listened to her on and off in the past. I dug what I've listened to, but I want to like actually sit down with her records. So the first one I actually sat down with is Apocalypse, and it's Apocalypse spelled with a K, or it's stylized, I think, in Greek. Just right off the bat, the album artwork is fucking haunting because it's Chelsea Wolf kind of looking up, wearing almost like a gypsy headband, and her eyes are completely whited out, completely blanked out. This whole album kind of deals with reaching epiphanies and becoming like an oracle, being like an oracle and reaching like these truths of the universe. But instead of them being like absolute truths or like beautiful or good truths, it's just the actual truth, which is not always pretty. It's sometimes very scary and horrific. I would say this album definitely leans a lot more on the horror sound. I think the technical label is gothic rock, but it's very dark ethereal, dark wave if you want to go that route. When you think gothic rock, you might think like The Cure and more like kind of poppy. No, this was like dark gothic rock. This is very foreboding. It's very heavy album. The fucking opening track, Primal Carnal, is just her screaming in a distorted voice, which that scared the shit out of me when I popped it on at first. (laughs) And then like her voice always sounds like it's funneled through a cone, like you're hearing it from a distance. And she has a very beautiful voice, but like there's something always so ominous about every track. It's just super creepy, but it's also like a lot of fun to listen to. I feel like this album really does kind of lean on is being an oracle just being possessed or is being an oracle like an actual like gift from the gods what are your thoughts as far as like themes go yeah i mean that's pretty right up there for that album i've really dug her stuff from the last couple of years especially she was a little more kind of folky and acoustic early on the last few albums have been very legit metal heavy uh namely abyss his spun and even birth of violence are all really solid i don't know i i I dig her i've liked everything that she's done so far yeah, because I kept seeing that kind of doom folk is what a lot of people are calling it, or dark folk. Her early stuff especially, yeah. Yeah, like maybe along the lines of like Amigo the Devil. This one even has like elements, uh, Apocalypse that is, has even elements of drone at certain points too. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it has the Americana country folky kind of feel that a lot of stuff that gets that label has necessarily. This is just straight up more, like you said, drony and kind of doomy. Again, like this album specifically is always labeled as gothic rock, but I don't think it gets the sad boyness cure vibe either like it's just very much its own like chelsea definitely has her own dark voice that doesn't really completely fall under either genre label to me this is a horror album like when i think of music that isn't necessarily attributed to like a horror soundtrack but like is creepy music that horror fans could appreciate this is among them this is a something you're not going to really hear otherwise usually yeah i didn't listen to her very first album the grime and the glow but maybe i should go back and listen to it i saw a lot of people say it was more just straight up indie folk and I was looking more for her like when she makes that dark turn and Apocalypse really seems when she like really takes that dark turn with her her music and again that that fucking album cover is haunting man like that is creepy to look at so yeah I will probably in the next few episodes return to her as I make my way through like Pain is Beauty Abyss and all the other albums get ready to talk more about her cool final recommendation I have is a video game and I'm about three or four hours into it it's one that kind of once 
say it went under the radar, but it was a lower budget game, but it was made with a ton of love. It has had an extremely positive reaction from the horror community. It's a game called Tormented Souls. It is a love letter to like the original Resident Evil or Alone in the Dark or even Silent Hill games um, where they have like fixed weird camera angles where you're at weird like angles when you walk into certain rooms and you can't quite see what's in front of you and you can only see your character. It definitely wears its influence on its sleeve to the point where like I walked into one section of the game and I was like, oh shit, this is literally just a homage to the when you first walk into the Spencer mansion in Resident Evil and you have like those dual staircases. It's basically about this young woman named Caroline Walker who just randomly in the mail receives a picture of these twins. When she looks at the picture, she starts getting like haunted nightmares about them and all this and that and figures out that she needs to investigate this old mansion that was turned into a hospital of some kind that may or may not be abandoned. So she travels there as she's walking into the front doors and like looking around. She gets knocked unconscious. She wakes up naked in an old grimy bathtub with a breathing tube down her throat perfect and she is missing an eye (laughs) and the game goes from there so it's her basically like investigating the disappearance of these twins but also like who did this to me and why it is so much a kind of love letter to like old school like ps1 ps2 era survival horror and i'm glad they did this they give you the option to use modern controls which are kind of easy to use more smooth more forgiving more accessible to newer players or old school survival horror tank controls from like original Resident Evils where you have to hold down a button the whole time to run. Your character literally moves like a tank where you have to like kind of position them before they can run in the direction you want them to run. That sounds like that kind of sucks if I'm being honest. Yeah, yeah, it's really for particular people like me who love that old school survival horror who grew up with old school Resident Evil and and Silent Hill. But, you know, they do offer the modern control scheme where it's so much more smoother. They still have the fixed camera angles even on modern control scheme, but the movability of the character is so much easier. But it's also so much of a love letter that they purposely even had the voice acting kind of be like cheese, kind of 1996, 97. Sure. just starting to get voice actors in video games kind of level of cheese, even kind of questionable dialogue. But man, it is actually a pretty creepy fucking game. It, it deals a lot with lighting and shadows. The monster designs are a little try hard of just let's put a mix between monsters from Silent Hill and that blind monster from Resident Evil 4 that has the Wolverine claws. Let's take those two things and like the regenerators even from Resident Evil 4 and all mash them up into like this horrific hospital monster monster that's wearing like a respirator and crawling on the floor using its Wolverine claws to come and like slash you up. Also, it does a pretty good job with the sound effects because you can hear the monsters a lot of times before you see them. Sure. So you can hear them like clanking on the ground and they just show up either right behind you or like come out of the darkness at you and you're not prepared. It is a challenging game. Uh, resources are limited. You Your first weapon is a nail gun. Think like steampunk-esque makeshift nail gun that they put like a gas canister on it to make it an actual weapon that's your first gun and then like i just found shotgun shells and i still haven't found the shotgun yet i'm using healing items almost as soon as i'm getting them there's a lot of old school survival where we're like it's actually a challenge and you actually have to kind of manage your menu and manage like your inventory and all that yeah but man it's good uh it's out on steam it's out on ps4 ps5 xbox it's out on all 
the major stuff. To give you an idea, it has a 94% rating on Steam out of nearly 2,000 user reviews, which means it's basically overwhelmingly positive. And the horror community, from what I've read, digs it. It does really scratch that itch of, you know, the old school survival horror. And I kind of agree with them so far. I do think there could be a little more enemy variety, like in the way the enemies look, but that's really just kind of a small gripe. Talk about a game starting off in a very creepy, exploitative and just terrifying way of like waking up naked in a bathtub with a breathing tube down your throat. You have to pull out your own breathing tube and then you discover, oh, wait, my eye is missing. What the fuck? (laughs) So, yeah, check it out. Tormented Souls. That's all I've got. Cool. Well, I've only got one recommendation, and that is on purpose, uh, partly because I don't want to go too long with recommendations. We've been long with recommendations for a while now, but also we got a lot to talk about. Uh, So I saw Ghostbusters Afterlife. Okay. So after Kelly talked about it. Yeah. It was fine. Okay. I know you'll know what I'm talking about. I feel like most people will understand what I'm talking about. This was like The Force Awakens of a Ghostbusters sequel in that there's nothing terribly original about it. It rehashes a lot of the same exact things from the last movie that everybody knows and loves. It just kind of modernizes the effects, but it's not pushing the story forward a whole ton necessarily, but it's a good jumping on point, I guess. It's a lot of the stuff that people are nostalgic about that you can look at and point at the screen and say, hey, I know what that is. Hey, I remember that bit. Hey, this character just said the thing. (laughs) But there is definitely, and, and I say this with love in my heart, this is definitely the most Spielberg purposely manipulating your emotional heartstrings of anything that I've seen in a long time. Okay. The kid parent stuff in it, in more than one layer, let's say, is very affecting. I can see if you are going to see this movie with your children, how that could be kind of extra impactful. I certainly understand where Jason Reitman is coming from in making this movie, because obviously his father did the original two. And so this is kind of a like, I'm going to carry on the thing that my dad is probably most well known for, right? It was fine. I I was whelmed. Let's put it that way. I was not necessarily completely won over by it, simply because it just follows so many of the same plot beats as the original movie with zero attempt to do anything differently it's very very purposeful and like hey the same shit is happening over again remember and that's kind of all there is to it it's very safe it's very safe yeah as far as a sequel to a beloved movie goes And again, this is, you know, beloved, nostalgic, lots of people, like, attach their childhood identities to this movie. And so those, of course, were the people who were crying hardest and loudest about the last one. You would think those are the same people that are crying hardest about this one this time, and that doesn't quite seem to be the case, because it's more just kind of giving you exactly what you want, if that's what you came in for. But like I said, it's The Force Awakens of Ghostbusters in that Hey, cool. Here's some new kids, but it's going to be a lot of the same plot beats. 
just different locations, different time, but it's largely a lot of the same stuff. It is not nearly as adult as the original movie, obviously, which was very much just about a group of cranky, misanthropic adults living in New York. And with this one being all about the kids, it's going to be a little more tame and a little more Goonies, a little more E.T., right? Mm. So it doesn't quite have some of the edge that the original movie has. Yeah, that is a little disappointing to me because that's why I, I respond so well to the original. You can tell that they were risking a lot. It was a concept that shouldn't have worked, but it did work. Yeah, and I would say to that point, I think the reason why the original one works is because of the writing and the cast. Yeah. And this movie does not really have either of those things. This movie seems to understand, oh, the original Ghostbusters was popular because people actually cared about the lore of this world and the mechanics of busting ghosts. Which is not at all what I care about when it comes to Ghostbusters. Yeah. There's so many scenes where, and you can tell they were like trailer shots where somebody will pick up the ghost trap or pick up the little like ghost meter and you know there's like slow-mo and there's lens flare and there's like some dust coming off of it and it's this very like like trailer shot you know what this thing is right yeah it's that thing it's that thing from the last movie that's so cool here it is again it's just a lot of that kind of stuff yeah so here here's a gripe of mine that franchises are doing nowadays especially ones that are like returning to old franchises star wars did the same thing and i like the force awakens but this is still a gripe it sounds like i would have the same issue with this movie if we're gonna like go with the canon of ghostbusters right that like the ghostbusters were famous in the 80s they saved new york city and possibly the world twice from these extra paranormal threats how are they so forgotten to the point of being like ooh, it's like a correct a legend no one knows that they actually existed motherfuckers like if ghosts existed and were attacking new york in the 80s we would still be talking about it to this day like there would be channels devoted to it podcasts devoted to it there would be like all kinds of shit devoted to that congress would have like drafted up bills about like ghosts and shit you know i hate to bring up marvel movies in this podcast right but as much as people whine and gripe about oh the the movies just keep referencing what happened in the previous movies they got to stop that and they got to move on See, that's one of the reasons why i like marvel all of everything in phase what I, phase two i guess everything post avengers one constantly being like oh yeah guys remember new york yeah remember when fucking aliens showed up and attacked new york and a bunch of rando people with crazy technology and skills and like literal gods showed up and like fought them back that's wild shit right remember when a mad space god fucking deleted half the universe for five years like yeah right we would be talking about that daily everybody would still (laughs) be talking about that guess what it's 20 fucking years later and Never forget, motherfucker, 9-11. It's printed on half the police cars around here. Yeah, we're still talking about that shit. So that is one of the gripes I had about this Ghostbusters movie was the substitute teacher, Paul Rudd, and then, like, one of the kids who, like, watches a shit ton of YouTube videos. They're the only two that, like, seemingly know or remember anything about the Ghostbusters. You know, like, how? Fucking how? Yeah. I get that this is, like, middle of nowhere Oklahoma, but again... Real life, 9-11, whatever. Again, just tangibly proving that ghosts exist. 
That alone would change everything. It would change religion. It would change everything. Yeah. So that is a gripe. That's a common gripe that has been said by a thousand other people at this point. I'm not saying anything new or original, but that is one of the biggest glaring, like, what the fuck? No, that doesn't work in this movie. That doesn't, it doesn't work. That's one of the biggest flaws of the movie is just nobody remembering the Ghostbusters. Yeah, that that's annoying. (laughs) I honestly don't have a problem with any of the kids. The kids are fine. You know, they're a little bit ham-fisted. Grace McKenna, McKenna Grace, she is the, like, nerdy Spangler kind of stand-in facsimile. She's definitely, you know, a little bit on the spectrum and just, you know, science is important, mom. I don't get along with other kids, mom. I don't want to go to school with all these lamos, mom. She's just kind of that. And it's fine for the most part, and I think it kind of finds an emotional center to do with her right the other kid is literally named podcast because he is always fucking recording a (sighs) podcast he doesn't get an actual name he's just hi i'm podcast but he's fine he has big dan Aykroyd hair energy okay so uh, off topic again i feel like the only movie recently that has handled podcaster as well was 2018 halloween halloween where they were bags they got murdered murdered right away yeah (laughs) yeah because uh that's what that would be me and you if we went to try and go interview michael myers we'd be fucking dead zoe yeah obviously the finn wolfhard character is trying to woo this girl that he kind of falls for in the new town he's kind of the slob he's kind of the fuck up he's the bill murray right and unfortunately the other character let's call her the winston she is also like basically the only black character in the movie and she also and this is one of my gripes about the original ghostbusters just kind of gets dumped into the mix like hi by the way i'm the fourth person i'm here now and that's kind of it right and there's not really any characterization given to her ernie hudson is kind of dumped in in the original movie you know i was gonna say if as much as i love the first original ghostbusters ernie hudson's treatment is like the one thing that still bothers me yeah he's totally just kind of dumped in at the last minute like he should have been there from the beginning as one of the dudes to like cement you know the relationship between the four of them but it does just feel like these three guys who are all university friends you can tell they have a history and then oh yeah the other guy who just joined their crew by the way who always kind of seems on the outside right and so this girl's kind of also just like oh by the way we need a fourth person can you fit in this suit and that's kind of all there is to it It, and it's weird too because she's kind of the Dana and the Winston character in this one put together. Okay. And that's kind of an odd fit that I wish that they had just done a better job of incorporating her from the get-go and getting all of them together from the get-go a little bit better. Surprise, surprise. I mean, just fucking Zool Gozer's back, whatever. You know, it's the demon dog. It's, it's just all the shit from the first movie. So I wish that they had gone in a new direction. Hot take. <laughs> Uh, the Ghostbusters video game from several years back is a better three, in my opinion, (laughs) at this point. A lot of people have said that. Especially if you want to, like, focus on the lore angle. This movie 
kind of tries to do that, and then you just don't really care about any of the lore. I guess, okay, spoiler alert, J.K. Simmons is in this movie, I did not know he was in this movie, playing Ivo Shandor, the guy who built the fucking skyscraper from the first movie. Okay. Like, crazy yeah. occultist guy. Okay? Okay. He is in this movie for roughly 45 seconds, and then he is murdered. And he is of zero consequence to the plot. Okay. So why is he there? Why is he there at all? I guess a nod for, like, that's, the diehard that's fans. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's just, oh, hey, you guys in the audience, you four people, remember this. The rest of the audience, they don't know who this guy is. There, there are weird touches like that that i don't know like it felt like this movie was also probably 30 minutes longer and they trimmed it down drastically you know it felt like there were a lot of weird loose plot threads that were kind of hangling but it was overall though still like not a bad watch right it was like i was entertained yeah, it was entertaining I was fucking entertained because yeah. i want to say like this is still a recommendation but yeah you and i are being a little cynical about it i guess the audience that i went with was kind of a mixed audience people of all ages in general, the audience responded pretty hard to the movie. They were laughing at the jokes. They were gasping during these moments of suspense. People literally fucking cheered at the end. The audience was eating it up. So, like, it works. It totally works. And it works in that very Spielberg, the absolute best emotional manipulation. But that's what movies are supposed to do, right? And movies are supposed to, like, elicit an emotion from you. Yeah. So I think it 100% exceeds at being entertaining, I think it's just one of those that if you think about it for any time past the movie when you're out, it kind of falls apart like sand in your hand a little bit. Would I say watch it? Yes. It is not bad. It could certainly have been much worse. I think it visually looks nice, despite so much of it clearly being like green screen backgrounds. I think it's a good jumping on point. If you're young and you've never seen Ghostbusters, kind of like we're talking about with Kelly, his son Elias has never seen Ghostbusters. Cool. This is a good entry point. This is like a good kid-friendly way to get in. Go back and watch the old ones. Cool. You still have the old ones. They're still there. They're not going to change. They're not going away, right? And it's a good way that you can move forward too. And I think if they got a really good writer for the second one that's invested more in the characters and less in the like lore and mechanics like I was saying and the nostalgia it could be really good it could be really really good and this is kind of the thing I took away from even with the new Disney trilogy of Star Wars, you know, despite the third movie kind of being universally reviled by like both the fans of the. Yeah, I don't think that movie made anybody happy. Yeah, I don't think it really made anyone happy. But that being said, when it comes to fan entitlement, these things are not meant for us. They're meant for everybody, including kids. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it really is also about is this going to make money for like Hollywood or not? Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. It's still a business. And if it's the only way they're going to make money, but also a way to introduce young audience to basically the same story, but make it more modern and make it maybe a little more PG and acceptable to kids, then fine. You always have this other stuff you can fall back on. For Star Wars, you have the original trilogy. I don't care what anyone says. Fucking Mandalorian alone makes up for all of Disney's other fuck ups they might have had since acquiring Star Wars. There's still other content out there that's amazing. Same with Ghostbusters. You still have the original Ghostbusters and fuck, I even like Ghostbusters too. I don't think it's as good, but it's not bad. If I want to watch Ghostbusters, I'm not going to be upset about this movie or even the female Ghostbusters movie that came out a couple years ago. Like, I still have 1984 Ghostbusters. If there are kids out there that are now becoming fans of the franchise because 
because of this movie or even the one that came out a few years ago great more power to them i would you know it's it's cool to have fresh blood and fandoms and that's ultimately like where i think i come down on this is if i ignore the half of this movie that is clearly meant to be just easy to digest fodder for the like nostalgia fanboys i think you got a decent movie if you if you just go with the idea of it's about the kids we're moving on this is a whole new generation we're gonna move into new territory cool i'm down with that yeah let me just ignore the like pandering half of this movie i guess even though the pandering half works at moments there were things that i really didn't like about the pandering half and that's all i'll say for the sake of massive spoilers which people probably are fucking aware of at this point for some of the shit that's in this movie but you know i think it's a good jumping on point for new fans and again for a series that is all of one unimpeachably good movie this is a series that is two movies So it's not like it has a long storied history like, you know, Bond or any other kind of horror franchise, right? Where there's 10 or more entries. No, there are two Ghostbusters, I guess technically three if we count 2016, and really only the first one is unimpeachably good, right? So anything is fine. Anything is fine. Like throw anything against the wall. And if it's watchable, it's fine. I know I'm falling into the trap, but I am generally curious. Lore wise. Is this movie doing the Halloween thing where it's ignoring Ghostbusters 2 and only acknowledging the very first Ghostbusters? No. Okay. So is it retconning the second movie? No. Does it ever actually acknowledge the second movie? No. Does it acknowledge 2016 at all? Well, no, because that movie has nothing to do with this continuity. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. I never saw 2016, so yeah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2016 is its own completely separate thing, but it's totally outside the continuity of these, right? Like, all the old guys show up in 2016, but they're playing, like, different characters, right? Like, they're all completely different people. It has nothing to do with the originals. But it's fine just to watch in a vacuum. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Watch it with your kids. I guarantee you, you will have a fucking emotional response, right? Because the movie is very good at making that stuff work. I think the effects looked good for the most part. I was surprised by some of the practical effects that were done in the movie because I was just expecting it all to be fucking CGI nonsense the entire time. You know, but I wish... And this also sounds wild for Ghostbusters. I wish there were more ghosts in it. (laughs) I wish there was, like, more ghost shit in the movie for it being so concerned with the lore and the world. There just weren't that many ghosts in it. But, you know, generally speaking, I kind of like the direction that they're going in. Would I like to see more? Sure. You know, if they make Ghostbusters, I don't know, regeneration, whatever, sure. But, you know, I I do think you could certainly do way worse. So, fuck it. When it's at Redbox, when it's on streaming, like, if you don't have time to go see it right now because it's busy, fuck it, watch it. It was perfectly enjoyable, turn your brain off kind of entertainment. And if they make more, sure, I'm down. So that's, I guess, all I'll really say so we don't drag this out any further. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, cool. So, let's go ahead and jump into our movie for this episode. Uh, Once again, like I mentioned right at the top, we are watching 
Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984, directed by Charles E. Sillier Jr., a movie that is notorious for its portrayal of a killer Santa Claus, a movie that was banned and pulled from theaters. And I can kind of see why. <laughs> is kind of a dark, fucked up movie, right? Yeah. Despite like some of the unintentional humor. A lot of violence to women, especially after they've taken their top off. Yeah. yeah. A lot of violence uh, kind of aimed at children. So, yeah, we'll talk about it in a second. But here you go, just to give you an idea. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. This was a mean fucking movie, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I told you. Slasher films usually do have a very small degree of lightheartedness and humor to it. And there is really not much to be had except for that good, good montage when he first starts working. Oh, yeah, the good boy montage. The good boy montage that got a good chuckle out of me. But, like, just having gone through the Halloween franchise, Halloween 1 was also a pretty dark slasher movie. But this really ups the ante because not only is it gory and ridiculously gory, like, in ways. like I mean, someone gets fucking picked up and impaled on deer antlers at one point. It is also, like, transgressive. It's a little bit exploitative it is like not afraid to terrorize children in a way that is almost borderline mean-spirited thanks grandpa (laughs) i don't know what what fucking santa claus did to grandpa in his past life that's what i want to know i want to know like what santa claus experience fucked up the grandpa so aaron and i we've talked about this a few times on the show we talk about this a lot for various reasons you and i don't necessarily respond well to this time of the year the holidays are not our favorite time of the year for various reasons. This year, I am trying to make an effort to enjoy them more vicariously through my daughter, but I think that this Halloween, she's still a little too young to really register what Halloween, or not Halloween, what Christmas is about. But I'm doing my best because, like, my wife likes Christmas. I want my daughter to like Christmas. And I think I am coming around on Christmas. But this movie helped tap into that darkness that comes with Christmas every year for me and really amplified it. I mean, you were talking about, like, during the Ghostbusters recommendation about, like, responding emotionally with children and, like, if you watch with your kids and all that. I'm finding that, and especially in horror movies, I am responding more emotionally when violence happens to a parent in front of their child or like something fucked up happens to the child now that I have a daughter of my own. I was kind of surprised at like how much that scene where the parents are killed kind of shocked me. I would not want that to happen to my daughter. And something like that happening is 
on one hand, it's ridiculous, but like, is it really out of the realm of possibility? Yeah, no. Technically, no. Awful shit like that happens a lot. Yeah, so like, I did respond more to that scene, like, right at the bat, let's get to the heart of like what our podcast is about, where we discuss kind of horror themes and fears that the movie is dealing with. You know, there's that parental loss at an early age. I was not expecting how much this movie deals with PTSD and like what happens when you don't treat it correctly. Yeah. And in this case, it's religion making things a thousand times worse. A Catholic orphanage and the head mother in charge thinking that basically child abuse is the only way to fix deeper seated problems in children. It deals with a weird aversion of sexuality between the killer witnessing his mom basically gets sexually assaulted before she gets her throat cut. And then him as an older boy seeing two people have sex in the orphanage and then immediately the mother superior like breaks it up and fucking like takes a belt to the people. Yeah. Well, not just that, but like seeing sex associated with the murder of his mother and immediately those wires getting crossed permanently and fucked up. Yeah, and then like naughtiness, like naughtiness, the only way to treat naughtiness is punishment. And what happened in that sex scene between, I guess those were like teenagers or maybe a younger sister and her boyfriend or something on the side getting caught by the Mother Superior while immediately like Mother Superior is like, they need to be punished. That's a naughty act. And she whips them with a belt, just furthering crossing those wires. The other sister, the one who is actually dead on the money of being like, hey, he has a weird aversion to like Santa Claus and Christmas time. Maybe we should get him actual treatment, like psychological treatment. And she gets shut down by Mother Superior. Even she fucks up because as when he hits 18, she's just like, let's get you employed in a toy store only months away from Christmas. That can't go wrong, right? Yeah, really. The other thing, too, that I'll say, this movie does that transgressive thing about putting children in, like, immediate, awkward, imminent danger. Just the weird, constant threat of violence to children. And not just physical violence, like emotional trauma, too. Yeah. The scene at the beginning with the kid and the grandpas, that's fucking dark, right? Like, that clearly scars this kid. The scene at the end where Billy comes back to the orphanage is also one of those, oh god, oh god, oh god, what's about to happen to these kids? The scene with the little girl and the box cutter is just one of those, like, oh shit, like, what's about to happen? Oh no. The deaf priest who dresses up as Santa Claus and then gets shot dead in front of all the children. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fucking scarred there. I was not expecting this. Like where the really the horror comes out in this movie is just how like mean spirited it is about Christmas, but like a child's view of what Christmas should be. Yeah. And like how everything is centered around the imagery of Santa Claus and that getting like really turned on its head. Even starting with grandpa, thanks grandpa, him basically saying, if you see Santa Claus run, if you've even committed the smallest, naughtiest of act, he's coming for you and he's going to punish you like. Wow. (laughs) So let's get into the controversy. So originally the movie was titled Sleigh Ride. That's S-L-A-Y ride, right? Nice. Sam Raimi was originally considered to direct the movie. It opened the same weekend as Nightmare on Elm Street and briefly outgrossed it until it was pulled from theaters. I mean, we talked about this on the Nightmare on Elm Street episode, but that movie definitely, like, took time to spool up and word of mouth carried Nightmare on Elm Street to success. But this movie, like, immediately, you know, was trumping it, right? 
But the movie was kind of instantly vilified by all these different parent groups, specifically the Citizens Against Movie Madness, which, fuck off, just whatever. What fucking name is that? (laughs) Just, Christ, like these people. You know, the media also gave this movie a lot of shit. And the hang-up, despite everything that we just talked about, seemed to be just that it was depicting Santa as a fucking axe-wielding murderer, despite that having been done multiple times already by other things, and nobody liked making a fuss. The producers were fully expecting people to be incensed by the negative depiction of the Catholic Church. Because the nuns at this orphanage are both physically and, you know, mentally and emotionally abusive. And just the weird levels of neglect involved. Here's another, like, real-life horror. We're coming to find out that that's exactly what happened. All the time. And still probably happens all the time. Especially in a Catholic, any religious organization run orphanage. Yeah, all the time. That's a real-life horror. Yeah. Gene Siskel was... A particular prick about this movie, listing off all the names of all the creatives and the companies that finance the movie on their show and just being like, shame on all of you. But there's no question in my mind that the showing of Santa with an axe on free TV and commercials is sick and sleazy and mean-spirited. So let's repeat the names of the people who did it. <laughs> TriStar Pictures, co-owned by Columbia Pictures, CBS, and Home Box Office. Shame on you. Now, as for the film, I've got news for you. It's worse than the TV ads. So, let me repeat the names of the writer and director and producers of this film. Michael Hickey wrote the film, Charles E. Sellier Jr. directed it, and Ira Richard Barmack produced it. You people have nothing to be proud of, even if you made a few bucks off of all the negative publicity. Your profits truly are blood money. And Silent Night, Deadly Night now has the distinction of joining I Spit on Your Grave as one of the two most contemptible films I've seen. And I don't mean to think it's campy, It really is quite awful. Parents picketed the movie theaters showing the film. There was a whole episode of fucking Donahue dedicated to, like, discussing the controversy and is there too much violence in the media, blah, blah, blah. And the the funny thing is, is there too much violence in the media? I'd say sure. I'd say yes, because if you look at, you know, stuff from the rest of the world, there's not nearly as much fucking violence as there is in American movies. We are also way more puritanical about sex stuff in our movies, but that's a whole other conversation, right? The screenplay writer for this, Michael Hickey, was kind of thrilled with the controversy because he was like, yeah, fuck yeah, like any negative press is still like good press when it comes to selling this movie and making it this, you know, unobtainable object of desire by people who want to see it. I could see that. (laughs) Like the controversy helped the movie at the end of the day. From what I read, it almost had an overnight cult status that still holds strong to this day. Recently, one of the producers has kind of since speculated that he believes TriStar might have pulled the film from theaters really because TriStar Columbia was owned by the Coca-Cola company Mm. and Killer Santa Claus is maybe not good for branding where literally fucking cane sugar syrup drink is promoted during the entire holiday season by fucking Santa Claus. Polar bears. (laughs) Yeah. And the producers of the film kind of wisely used all this controversy in all the advertising of this film from the 1986 re-release to now. You know, said right at the top this is one of the controversial oh my god we can't believe this movie got made it was so transgressive for the time blah 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 and at the end of the day still the killer santa idea is the least offensive shocking or disturbing thing in this fucking movie oh yeah who gives 
two shits yeah. about the idea of Killer Santa Claus, and that's what all the controversy seemed to hang on. Yeah, uh, that's strange. The way that the children are treated at the orphanage, particularly like when they fucking tie Billy to his bed and all the corporal punishment, right? Like you said earlier, the sexual assault scenes, multiple scenes where children are in tangible danger, right? Like all that shit is way more unsettling and grim than just oh we took the easter bunny but now he's got fangs and he's biting people like who gives a shit santa claus is not real right (laughs) that's also part of the trauma that we talked about with gremlins and with this movie is it's very much you know mother superior at the end chanting defiantly santa claus is not real right all of that stuff is way more disturbing and it it still baffles me that this movie had so much fake outrage not even outrage at like the stuff that is actually questionable but just the fake fox news bullshit we have to have something to be fucking mad about this holiday war on season. christmas before the war on christmas war on was christmas around, war yeah. shit. yes yeah, yeah. it's fucking starbucks cups it's oh my god you can't say merry christmas anymore say merry christmas merry christmas fuck off right it's just the weird parents have to be up in arms about fucking something and they picked all the wrong things to be up in arms yeah. about actually yeah they they're up in arms about santa claus holding an axe and they're up in arms about i guess the catholic church god forbid there's actual nuns out there that are actually bad people to children well, again that wasn't really even that big of a deal the producers from the beginning assumed that's going to be the friction point is the criticism of the yeah. church and that ended up not being a big deal at all yeah right? that that's kind of the weird thing is like after i watched it and i was like okay you know this came out in 1984 i looked a little bit into the response at the time because in my head i was just like surely there was there was a little bit of controversy with like the way women are treated through this movie the sexual assault angles that happened more than once yeah i might add in the first 15 20 minutes of this movie kid shows up grandpa tells him santa is real but is horrible and is coming after him then you have a guy dressed up as santa robbing a gas station murdering someone for like 37 bucks then you have him stop them shooting the dad dead in front of the kid trying to assault the mom ripping off her bra and her clothes when she fights back he slits her throat in front of the kid that alone those first 20 minutes alone i was like surely these are the things people were like upset about right and it wasn't at all it was just, like yeah. you said it was just the image of santa itself i was like really like to me all i mean and granted it is all in retrospect i guess the idea of santa claus or someone dressed as santa under whatever stressors related to the holiday going crazy and like killing people that is a fun horror idea but it wasn't like a controversial one that's why it's just kind of so baffling to me well okay so this is also a similar dumb kind of comparison i guess because i don't know i live in the bible belt the holidays down here are fucking miserable because people are fucking miserable. It would be like, okay, we made a movie about the life of Jesus and it's full of all these crazy controversial things and violence and sexuality and all this intense shit that you think people would get up in arms about in terms of how Jesus is depicted. But really, people are just mad that he's like a Middle Easterner, which is actually like kind of a like, okay, well, Jesus, get, get out of here, right? God, fuck, you're totally right about that. <laughs> By you the know, way. It's, it's that kind of thing. It's that kind of thing. Like, how dare you? How dare you, sir, show our Lord and Savior as some kind of Middle Eastern brown person? Last I checked, 
uh, where's Bethlehem, right? You know, it's, it's the little things, right? It's the same kind of get your priorities straight kind of bullshit, you know? This movie is kind of mean-spirited and dark in lots of weird fucked up ways. Uh, Killer Santa's not that. Frankly, the Killer Santa holding the axe poster, that poster's rad as fuck. And people were like, ban the poster, put it from stores, we can't even show this image. Fuck off, right? So the part of the movie that really works for me is like, when he's running around with an axe and like, those two bullies steal that sled and he fucking beheads the one going down the, the hill on the sled. That's what horror is about. It. We've talked about it before millions of times. You mentioned it in our very first episode. Horror is a pressure valve for all these anxieties and real life stressors that we deal with. And if you are someone who is like up to your eyeballs in holiday stress and you sit down and watch this movie I feel like you would feel so much better about like yeah fuck this holiday at those scenes where he is beheading a bully who stole someone's sled because yeah. he deems them as <laughs> naughty yeah I would love to watch a movie where like if I'm fed up with my job in retail where I've worked my ass off Black Friday was terrible people are terrible I go back and watch a movie about some guy Santa Claus losing his shit and chopping people down yeah that's gonna help me deal with those stressors i feel like yeah yeah, but i'm with you i think that poster is pretty fucking rad too yeah you know funny enough robert brian wilson who plays billy in this was embarrassed about this movie for years because of all the controversy and kind of you know would hide it from people a little bit but he attended a horror con a few years back for one of the like anniversaries of this and was genuinely surprised by how many fans this movie has and just the like general welcoming spirit of the horror fan community and everything else and it's interesting to see and I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later but it's interesting to kind of see like where he's gone from here again this movie being controversial so six minutes of footage was actually cut from the original release and all of that was restored for the Scream Factory Blu-ray that came out a couple of years ago you know there's a noticeable drop in quality when it cuts to those inserts because they weren't as well maintained yeah that was the version I watched okay that's what I was about to ask was like which version did you watch yeah yeah so this movie is readily available but unfortunately it's mostly readily available to rent or buy so i rented it on youtube for like three bucks or two bucks or something i'm gonna stop you right there because guess what december 2nd today as we're recording this episode it is available on tubi for free and you can watch both cuts of the fucking movie oh nice yeah i only i only paid like two or three bucks on youtube so i'm not mad and it was it was definitely worth the money but yeah the cut i watched was that because there were a couple scenes where it was like noticeably the quality drop and I was like, huh, that's weird. I don't know if this is an extended cut and I was going to ask you that later on. So I'm glad that you kind of cleared that up for me. Yeah, and the elements just weren't well maintained at TriStar. So by the time the Scream Factory found everything, they can only do so much in terms of restoring them and reincorporating them into the larger movie. But otherwise, it's kind of interesting the fact that this movie was kind of a staple for years. But at least from my experience, and this may be a generational thing, I don't know. But at least from my experience, this movie really became a thing because of fucking Garbage Day from the second movie becoming like such a fucking weird early internet meme. Garbage Day! And people just going, what is this from? Oh, it's from this Christmas killer movie where a guy dresses up like Santa Claus and murders people. But this is the second one. Yeah, it's his brother. And yeah. spoiler alert, uh, 
he does get the revenge on Mother Superior, which is pretty great. But <laughs> yes. yeah, that movie is so fucking nutso from what I've seen of it that I would say if we ever did cover it on this podcast, it would definitely be a commentary track. I mean, I'll admit I'm one of those people that Garbage Day is kind of my way into finding out about this film franchise in general, specifically yes, the first movie. Because Garbage Day, I want to say it really exploded in like internet popularity in 2008 when I was like, just out of freshman year of college because I remember us playing that video quite a lot. It would always be in like worst acting compilations, most ridiculous movie scenes compilations. It would always be in that kind of stuff. But yeah, like that's exactly how I came to watching this original movie was through the fact that that was a fucking meme and just backtracking and figuring out like what is this insane shit? I need to know like what the hell this is. But yeah, it's definitely interesting like the legs that this movie's had considering it was pulled from theaters and then it was released later in various versions but you know now i mean we've got this great blu-ray that's available with all the extra shit and everything else so as far as like you know the movie itself let's actually kind of start talking through it a little bit so i love that the opening music sounds kind of like fucking gene from bob's burgers just got a new keyboard <laughs> yeah and is just sitting there like trying out all the voices. My grandparents are staying with us and they were both alive during Prohibition. So, this is what it sounds like when they have sex in the room next to mine. Ow! 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 What? Ow! Principal's Ow! office now! Ow! Ow! Right! The score to this is kind of bananas, and it turns out that the composer literally just sat there with a beta cassette of the movie playing and just kind of banged out a temp score right then and there, and then kind of went back and polished it a tiny bit, but not a whole lot, because the the score to this is just kind of all over the place. The orphanage was actually an old schoolhouse that was demolished shortly after filming. I love after we get the first time jump. Little Billy looks like he is dressed like a tiny trucker. Yeah. He's got his fucking denim and his weird little plaid shirt and his fucking mullet. (laughs) He looks like he just stepped out of a fucking Allman Brothers music video. Here's the thing between Billy and was it Timmy is his brother. Yeah. I want to know exactly their age difference because in the beginning, his brother is an infant but doesn't seem like a brand newborn yeah and billy only seems like he's like four or five years old but when we jump ahead in this movie to like billy is 18 his brother still seems like he's like fucking six billy is 18 (laughs) in air quotes and nobody else around him has aged yeah yeah but it's it's very much the like walk hard mama you made it there's my favorite 14 year old son Um, I'm 18-year-old Billy. That's me. Yeah, no one else's age. He looks like a 20-something-year-old. And he is built like, not original Halloween Mike Myers, but Mike Myers and all the other (laughs) movies. I love that... Iris Toys, where they get him the job, is now a fucking gym. It's been a bunch of different things over the years, but it's still fucking there. And and by the way, this movie was filmed in fucking Utah. That's kind of a wild thing that, like, so many horror movies filmed in Utah. But I guess Utah's a gorgeous state. And Utah has a lot of, like, immediate, inherent 
scene and production value just with the natural vistas that are there so there's parts of this movie where you see the mountains in the background and it's pretty fucking gorgeous right yeah but it is still weird that like utah of all states well and i think in a weird way it works because towards the end of the movie like when they go back to the orphanage the orphanage does seem a little in the middle of nowhere you see like the mountain in the background and all that kind of stuff but it also feels like kind of a winter wasteland in certain shots. Yeah. And like that seems like such an ideal, like especially if you're going to go like this movie taking place overnight, ending in the early morning of Christmas Day. That's such an eerie kind of location where an orphanage is and like for Santa to show back up to the point where they even have like an old storage shed that, you know, was built decades before, like maybe by a farmer or something. When they converted into an orphanage, they just never got rid of it. That was like one of the creepier settings of the movie was like when that cop goes down into it to investigate and then just seeing like when they do the false out on you with the priest dressed up as Santa him kind of walking across the street from the church to the orphanage and you're thinking and maybe it's Billy yeah that just kind of imagery like in that frozen wasteland kind of style really worked yeah I also love, speaking of all the different Santas that are in this, I love the, like, Billy Age 8 segment where they're forcing him to go sit with the Santa that came to the orphanage, and he's just losing his shit. Dude, he fucking decks him. And then he hauls off and punches that Santa. (laughs) Yeah, he either decked that fucking Santa for real, or it's just one of the best stage punches I've ever seen. I love the two that they just put, like, the full, just Jean-Claude Van Damme, just, you know, sound effect in there but yeah that kid punches the shit out of that Santa and it's hilarious. I backed it up three times and just laughed my ass off. I love how like it drew blood like it fucking almost broke the Santa's nose. Yeah. (laughs) Once he gets hired at Ira's like we've alluded to already you get the montage of isn't Billy great? Isn't Billy like the best boy? And he's like stacking boxes and getting (gasps) pats on the head and the weird fucking not even Diet Coke Joe Pesci like Shasta Cola Joe Pesci is like hey you want some fucking whiskey kid and he's like no I'm good I got milk and just like <laughs> holds up that giant fucking like quart bottle of milk that he's pounding. Well, it, it just goes to show how that toy shop was run by total fuck ups because he is just basically <laughs> yeah. doing like his job period and like they're like yeah he's so fucking good at his job but then everyone else yeah. is like an alcoholic and or just not doing anything and to the point where like just by him doing like what he was hired to do like he's regarded as like this hard worker yeah also like what's the fucking deal with the boss at the toy store when they first kind of are like oh yeah here's billy here he is he's a big strapping big boy i can't quite tell is the boss intrigued by the idea of, oh, this hot young boy is in my shop now in kind of a creepy way? Or is he just astounded by the fact that this slab of meat is actually an 18-year-old, <laughs> right? I can't tell, like, which it is or both. I took it was the latter, but it could be both. And I also took it as this, oh, I can make this guy, like, do all the physical labor I don't want to do and that the other guy yeah. who is in the back never does because he's lazy. <laughs> yeah. Schmo. Schmo Leshy, yeah. 
I guess that scene too is supposed to like allude to the fact that Billy basically is slasher big for his age. Yeah. <laughs> like superhumanly big, like again along the side of like Jason or Michael Myers. Yeah, totally. I also do like just looking at all the fucking toys in this toy store too. Like yeah. all the random shit that's in there. You know, there's definitely like some Masters of the Universe. Uh, me being like a vintage Star Wars person, I definitely loved seeing the Jabba yeah. and the uh, Dubak. But what fucking struck me this time that I don't think I've ever paid attention to before, did you notice the fucking Krull board game? No, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I had to look it up afterward to see if it was real. It is totally real. It is a board game of the movie Krull. Oh, okay. I'm gonna pull that up right now, but when was this movie shot? In 1983 or in 84? Because I know it released 84. I mean, yeah, I would I would assume 83. They shot it in spring. I know that. It was either spring 83 or spring 84. And when I say spring, I mean like March and April. They shot it in Utah and so the spring thaw was already starting. So they had to kind of rush and do all the outdoor shooting first i'm not sure like i said if it was let's say spring of 84 got edited came out in late 84 around christmas time that is most likely the case because it's not like there's a lot of heavy visual effects that they had to do afterward in this movie so that that would be my guess at least also too the only thing better than that fucking montage is billy losing his shit after seeing that santa claus banner just him like dead staring and just shaking and sweating staring at it cracks me the fuck up so in a weird way and maybe because this is still it was still on my brain when i watched this but like in a weird way this was the more serious competent holiday version of blood rage like i think this is the (laughs) movie that blood rage wants to be wants to be and thinks it is but this is actually done in a truly dark and competent manner but then at the same time like you actually have a legitimate trauma moment when his parents get brutally murdered by a guy dressed as Santa Claus after his grandpa told him that because he's naughty Santa Claus is coming to punish him yeah (laughs) really like blood rage it's just like my mom wants to fuck I guess that's the blood rage yeah Yeah, this movie does kind of have that wild danger to it. And like, even once he goes full on slasher and is just wandering around, I don't know, he like fucking murders that couple for no real reason, right? He just, I guess, sees old girl Linnea Quigley, you know, like we made a joke about the beginning of the episode, letting her cat in from the cold, just completely topless, as you do, I guess. But just, you know, the way that it moves from, I'm going to get revenge on my shitty boss and my shitty co-worker and and in a bad way there is that moment where you're kind of cheering for him as he kills Bo Kleshi because you know he was trying to assault the co-worker that he kind of had a crush on but then it immediately turns because this movie is kind of hateful right and the woman then is like nah fuck you you're a piece of shit you're crazy blah 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 and he kills her right yeah immediately kind of transgresses and moves from like oh is this just gonna be like righteous justice vigilante santa who goes across the land taking out all the like shitty people this holiday season oh wait immediately no he's also just killing random people you know so it it immediately kind of has that dark edge to it it's randomness and also like i think he is attributing naughtiness to sexuality because again yeah those wires crossed when he saw what happened to his mom and then again what happened with the two people in the orphanage when he was a boy and so like i think he just views sexuality as anyone in engaging in that act 
I guess if it's not done under the eyes of Lord Jesus Christ as is, is naughtiness. And so they need to be punished. But then the other thing that's telling or the two other things that are telling is that he's avoiding the police on purpose because he knows they're after him. Yeah. So so he knows what he's doing is bad. He knows what he's doing is also naughty. But then the other thing is he also tells the children as he's dying. Now you don't have to worry about Santa Claus anymore. So I think in a weird way, he's also like fulfilling his own punishment. Basically, like I deserve to die as well. It's not just that I'm punishing all these people, but I also deserve to die. You could really like examine what is actually really going through his head. But again, I just have to go back to like the sister who like actually cared about him and actually wanted to deal with his psychological problems and deep seated rage. (sighs) You fucked up when you had him hired on at a toy store again. How could you not (laughs) see Christmas coming inevitably and that not causing a problem? (laughs) Yeah, true. Again, I'd keep going back to like Mother Superior then just screaming, there is no Santa Claus as he's about to like axe the fuck out of her. So anyway, yeah, like the whole movie kind of culminates in this final confrontation at the orphanage. Billy is shot and killed by the police and kind of falls dead right at the feet of his younger brother, Ricky, thus kind of perpetuating the trauma to the next person. So it's pretty standard, you know, slasher movie stuff. And, you know, I don't think that there is really ever any playing anything for jokes at all. Like, everything about this movie is kind of just dead serious. It doesn't really ever feel like it's trying to be funny. Yeah, to even the point where, like, when he picks up that girl who, like, thought it was her cat and impales her on the deer antlers, that alone sounds like humorous, oh, funny, goofy kill in a slasher. But it is treated, like, just as serious and dark, and he's just chanting naughty at as he's doing it as any of the other kills in this movie. Yeah. Again, a guy goes down a sled, gets beheaded halfway down the way, and his headless body goes the rest of the way down the hill on the sled. And of course, inevitably, his head also rolls down after. And like, yeah, that description is kind of funny in like, oh, slasher creative kills way, but it is all treated in the same dark tone that the rest of this movie is in. Yeah, totally. So as far as the cast is concerned, like I mentioned, Robert Brian Wilson plays Billy. He was on some soaps and TV and shortly after this movie he kind of just got out of the acting game and got involved with trade shows interesting and so he's literally like involved with the groups that put together trade shows and manages that so that's what he does now He has done some acting here and there since but that's kind of about it There is a very charming way that he looks at this movie now that I'll talk about in a minute. But it's it's very interesting that he literally did just kind of jump into this one thing, instantly became a horror icon, and then was just like cool but i'm good bye yeah so it's it's always interesting to me when people kind of do that and then they're just out and just pursue something entirely differently like regardless of the genre you know it's just wild to me thinking that like oh the kid from willy wonka that played charlie like that was his one movie and he's a fucking dentist the kid from the shining that plays danny is like a pediatrician you know (laughs) lillian chauvin played mother superior she was in a lot of old tv and westerns she was also in the mephisto waltz predator 2 
Universal Soldier, Pumpkinhead 2, The Man Who Wasn't There, Coen Brothers, and Catch Me If You Can, which is Spielberg. Wait, what was she in Predator 2? Who did she play in Predator 2? You know, I would have to go back and purposely try to find her. Okay. Because I honestly don't remember off the top of my head. There's a lot of things about Predator 2 that I remember, but I don't remember that. Part of me thinks the (laughs) the scene where Danny Glover and the Predator are chasing each other, because that's which one that is, is the one with Danny Glover is just running around LA with this predator. They're climbing up the drain pipes and they break from one building and fall to the other and the predator like smashes through the side of the building right. and is in this old yeah. couple's bathroom, yep. right? Yep, yep, yep. I believe she might be the old lady. The old lady in that, okay. That's there with like the broom, right? Yeah, that makes so much more sense. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm thinking, but I haven't gone back to look at that necessarily. Will Hare plays grandpa and i really only bring that up because the year after he was in a major major pop culture movie any any guess take a wild stab 1985 which you think he would have been in 85 pop culture um all-time pop culture fuck uh what came out around 85 was robocop before or after 85 after shit not predator or was this already done Ghostbusters? That was the same year. That was 84. That was 84? Fuck. All right. Uh, I'm going to give it to you. He is Pa Peabody in Back to the Future. Gotcha. For some reason, I thought Back to the Future was 84. Nah, that's 85. Yeah, but he's the old farmer guy that they crash the DeLorean into his barn. He comes up there and is just like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. There you go. There's Grandpa. The only other person that I specifically wrote down was Linnea Quigley, who played Denise. She has been in a movie that we've already covered on our show. Care to take a guess about what that could be, possibly? Was that one... I'm trying to remember which scene or what scene specifically she was in in this movie. She's the girl friends that's making out with the dude on the pool table and she gets thrown up on the antlers I wanted to say night of the comet but i know that's not it close night of the demons of the demons okay yes yeah she shoves the lipstick into her boobie that's her okay that was the same uh, okay same actress yes yeah, yeah, yeah she was also in graduation day savage streets return of the living dead which we will certainly cover eventually dead heat nightmare on elm street 4 witch trap and she was also along with lillian chauvin in Pumpkinhead 2 Weird coincidence there. Uh, looking up at this cast, maybe more so than any other horror movie we've covered, not no one really either stuck in horror genre or like stuck in acting on movies. Yeah, not necessarily, right? I'm kind of surprised with how iconic this movie is now in the horror community and just all the controversy that surrounded it back in the day that no one became a horror icon, became regular lexicon yeah. and uh, going all that. Like, Yeah, Linnea Quigley is really the only person. Yeah, but even she like just... Just did everything she didn't necessarily like stay in one genre um because i mean tony nero who plays pamela who probably gets the worst next to like maybe the parents like gets the worst worst treatment certainly yeah, yeah she doesn't really show up in much of anything gilmer mccormick who played the nun who actually like was like hey let's treat billy's deep-seated rage with actual medicine and mental health care she didn't really do much of anything after this either so like it's just interesting how few i mean linnea quigley you could argue is like the one person in this movie that was very much 
much in the horror genre for a while. But otherwise, yeah, no one else really of note has like done much of anything through this. Who was the killer Santa Claus in the beginning? Was that actor anything? Yeah, so that is Charles Deercop. He's still alive. He has been in shit all the way back into the 60s with The Hustler. He was in St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He was in the old Batman TV show, which I guess, you know, that could be our like, okay, close enough to Batman the Animated Series for this episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Just a lot of random stuff. Uh, so he's... Now that I'm scanning it again, Messiah of Evil, um, he was in The Sting, and he was in a lot of 80s TV stuff, so yeah, he was in a bunch of things. But anyway, yeah, that's one aspect, and I guess this will be a good transition point, that I find to be kind of interesting, because, like you said, there's not a lot of well-known named people in this first movie. Guess what? There's not a lot of well-known named people in the second movie, but from the third movie on is where it starts to get interesting. And so that's part of the reason why I did not really do a whole lot of recommendations, because guess what? I watched all the fucking sequels for this. Really? In preparation for this movie. Okay. Take a wild stab at how many fucking sequels you think there are for Silent Night, Deadly Night. So just direct sequels to this movie not the remake like in 2012 okay so you know there's a remake yeah in 2012 i know there are four the fifth one is the toy maker yes there's five movies total plus a remake which i've heard the fifth one is actually worth watching for just how fucking wild that one is so let's talk through this okay (laughs) so yeah that's what i spent my week doing which is like i said part of the reason why i cut my recommendations short because i wanted to talk through these this series is kind of fucking wild yo yeah i know from the little bit i've right up on it (laughs) so movie two came out in 87 it was directed and you see like how big the air quotes are (laughs) that i'm doing on camera right now by lee harry and that is because literally the first 40 fucking minutes of this movie is almost entirely just reused footage from the first movie that's so wild (laughs) so so wild this movie is ricky caldwell again the little brother from the first movie played by eric freeman who is in prison and he is speaking with a psychologist who's recording their whole session and he is recounting the death of his parents his brother's mental break as the killer santa yeah and then it goes into like his own slide into madness as he then escapes and goes for his final revenge against mother superior and let's talk like because yes there's the garbage day meme which is like the very end of the movie by the way if you go to look for it because i i remember i i got caught up in that meme i thought it was hilarious when it was popular and i went and like watched a ton of clips from this movie because i was like surely that's just one weird take that he had for this character of that's what it means to go nuts quote unquote no 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 he is that way through this entire movie <laughs> yeah. His like over exaggerated, like moving his eyebrows up and down and way of talking is the entire fucking movie. <laughs> his constant awkward <laughs> laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and like to the point where I can't see how beyond it just following the tropes of a horror movie, it's not fucking scary at all. It feels like it's more of a black comedy like from the bits I've seen. Oh, yeah. I don't know who fucking like decided to let him go that route with the character and thought it was a good idea if they were trying to make a serious sequel. So according to Eric Freeman, you know, because obviously like people have been critical of his performance for years and have just been like, he's a terrible actor 
actor or he just had no experience and was a terrible actor, blah, blah, blah. He was in stuff before this. He was studying acting. And the way he tells it is he was kind of juggled between the writer and the director. Again, director in like big air quotes. And it would vacillate between we want you to do this scary and serious and you're crazy so it needs to be big and over the top. Yeah. And so he's constantly kind of stuck between those two things, right? Well, and it's interesting because I remember like when Garbage Day was really making the rounds, there were people who like found him because they were like, where did this actor go? Because he had retired from acting for a little while, I remember. He retired, I, I want to say in like the early 90s, like not too long yeah. after this movie dropped. And, you know, back then when Garbage Day was really popular, 4chan was the big thing that everyone went to, not Reddit. I remember there being a 4chan thread that like they found Eric Freeman where he was and somehow got his phone number which don't do this by the way this is such a fucking dick move but yeah don't dox people yeah people are calling him and trying to get him to like talk about his role as ricky chapman or just straight up do garbage day impersonate ricky chapman do garbage day and like he was telling people to fucking stop it and uh i felt bad for him like when that happened but then uh he has kind of returned to acting since then and it looks like he's actually embraced the cult status of that portrayal so eric freeman and robert brian Wilson have both attended horror conventions in the last couple of years and so they have kind of embraced the like okay we're like weird icons of this holiday Christmas movie now there is a pretty solid episode of the Shockwaves podcast which is now defunct it's episode 32 if you want to go look for it where they have both of them on to discuss their movies and to discuss kind of where they are now and blah 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 it's it's a very interesting movie if you kind of want to hear like the two of those guys discuss exactly how the fuck they got involved with this whole series also i noticed they appeared together not too long ago it looked like it was 2016 in a lifetime christmas movie titled a husband for christmas did they play brothers of that movie too i believe so yeah, yeah. the movie stars vivica fox and eric roberts because of course it does weird side tangent I noticed between the director of that movie and Vivica A. Fox, they have made a gajillion Lifetime movies. Kind of makes me sad that that's what she's doing now, but she has made 30 fucking Lifetime movies. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's okay. Oh, oh, she's doing fine <laughs> yeah. money-wise, I'm sure. It's just one of those, damn, I know you're yeah. capable of so much more. Well, you I know mean, what I mean? Same thing with Bruce Willis nowadays. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, it cracked me up the amount of the wrong husband the wrong best friend the wrong fiance just endless lifetime movies with vivica fox and this one christmas one happens to star the two fucking dudes from these movies that is not a fucking coincidence that is not an accident oh yeah somebody in casting purposely was like fuck it get these two guys yeah and make them brothers um and i also saw he did a short back in 2018 called ricky today the caldwell interview where he plays ricky caldwell again yeah, I did not have time to watch that. I haven't watched it yet either, but I looked that up too. Yeah, I, I do want to say we will do part 
two eventually, and it will definitely be like that. Might a be funny, a commentary. Like, yeah, ha ha commentary track for sure. Last thing I'll say about number two: Lawrence Hilton Jacobs plays the orderly, and there's a very kind of goofy ass exchange at the beginning with Ricky and this orderly, like kind of playing chicken with each other. But he is also one of the leads in the Annihilators, which is one of the only other movies that the original movie's director, Charles Sellier, directed. And the weird, again, just serendipity, coincidence, kind of bullshit things, he also plays one of the leads in Rob Zombie's 31. Interesting. has come up recently because I just watched it. So that was a weird, like, wait, this guy looks fucking familiar. What do I know him from? Oh, shit. So yeah, weird synchronicity right there. That now gets us into the third movie, which, by the way, all these are free to watch on Tubi. Matter of fact, this is the only place where you're really going to find movies three through five. So they are all on Tubi. You can watch them free with ads. As of December 2nd at the time of this recording, the motion picture Silent Night, Deadly Night, and all four sequels are available to stream on Shudder. This is where the sequels start to get kind of fucking buck wild. Three still follows this timeline, right? Because I know four and five are like their own separate thing. Yes. Okay. Maybe. Number three. Better watch out. 1989. Okay. Yep. Directed by Monty Hillman, who did Tulane Blacktop and Cockfighter and lots of very actually serious movies. And according to him, it was one of those things where like his agent came to him while he was literally sick with the flu and feverish and like losing his brain and just shoved some papers in his hand and said, sign this. And then when he woke up from like the fugue of sickness, he was like, oh shit, I'm directing this horror movie. They tossed the original script. The movie was rewritten in March, filmed in April, edited in May, and came out in July. That's how fucking quick the turnaround was on this sequel. Wow. It's about a blind girl named Laura, played by Samantha Scully, who is psychically tethered to Ricky. What is this with random weird girl has psychic powers tethered to the slasher? Because <laughs> fucking Halloween 4 slash 5 does this too. Uh-huh. Yeah, and this time, Ricky is played by motherfucking Bill Mosley. Yeah, I saw that. He is now catatonic, and his brain is in a dome. And this is what I don't fucking get. So yeah, he got shot up a bunch in the second movie, like shotgun blasted to the chest. And then when we see him in this, Bill Mosley literally has like the entire top dome of his head is just brain that's straight up exposed. And then it has like a dish with like a little glass dome kind of screwed around it. Did they do that on purpose to be like a nod to Chop Top? I don't know. I would say I doubt it. Okay. But yeah, it's just him like wandering around with liquid slushing in this brain dome and him going around murdering people. Now, here's where it also gets great. The rest of this cast includes, and this is the year before Twin Peaks, Eric DeRay, fucking Leo from Twin Peaks, and he is... <laughs> full fucking grunge mode with his wild nasty stringy hair and his wild chest hair and faded denim jeans and everything. Richard Bamer, Ben Horn, he is the like crazy psychologist doctor who's doing this psychic experiment with this killer. And then Laura Herring from Mulholland Drive is the girlfriend to Eric DeRay in this movie. So this movie has three David Lynch people in it. 
all before Twin Peaks happened. I gotta watch this movie now. Oh, it's dry as hell. Like, I'm just gonna warn you right now, like, it's kind of fucking boring. Really? It is definitely like an 84 minute movie that 20 minutes of that is just like the most walking around in the darkness what's going on can somebody hear me is anybody out there filler it couldn't even make it so incompetent that it's fun the idea of bill mosley with his brain exposed walking around i guess did he dress up as santa again murdering people no not at all but either way like that alone is so fucking wildly incompetent and having a psychic girl and everything else that it would at least be entertaining but that's disappointing pointing when it's kind of both bad and boring yeah and the only christmas anything in it really is just the fact that the psychic girl is seeing visions of a killer santa claus as she's tethered with ricky and then her and leo who's her brother in this story they are going to like visit their grandma for christmas and so of course it's you know a fucking farmhouse in the middle of nowhere that's isolated and ricky shows up there and is just you know zombie stalking around trying to get them sure whatever okay number four initiation this is 1000 percent the absolute has nothing to fucking do with any of the other movies it has nothing to do with christmas it is the least connected and it is the least christmas related of any of the sequels and this is where they drop the storyline of ricky and billy and the santa slasher yes and again three is a tenuous connection at best but this one initiation came out in 1990 Directed by Brian Yuzna, who did Society, and Bride of Reanimator, and Return of the Living Dead Part 3, and produced all the, like, good Stuart Gordon shit. Immediately, I was like, okay, cool. Like, this is at least going to be, like, a fairly well-directed, like, visually interesting movie. The discarded script for 3 was the basis for this film. So they literally just <laughs> took the script for three that they tossed and was like, sure, just do this one now. That's a bad start. <laughs> Newspaper reporter played by Neith Hunter. Uh, she becomes obsessed with investigating a spontaneous combustion high-rise jump suicide. Oh, Okay. And discovers a giant conspiracy involving giant insects and a coven of New Age witches. Pros. Easily the best visual effects, like special effects, makeup effects in the series, right? It's all Screaming Mad George. So it's wild body transformation shit and giant larval slug grub bug going in people's mouths and out of people's bodies people turning into bugs like it's got some bananas horse shit in it cons easily the rapiest of the movies Oof. okay there's kind of some like ultra gross in the same way that so many movies about witch covens and stuff do boil down to like okay random girl who's somehow falling into this world of the occult and witchcraft you're gonna get force fucked by some awful nasty person to birth some new overlord creation antichrist demon child whatever the fuck it is for that particular movie um so this movie definitely had a lot of those vibes of the main character kind of being forced to have a lot of sexual content with characters that you know you're just like the entire time like just fast forward this shit you also have Maude Adams in this, Reggie Bannister from Phantasm, and you have fucking Clint Howard in this one. 
playing a crazy homeless guy. Okay. Whose name is Ricky. Okay. But it's never made clear whether or not he's playing that Ricky. Sure. Sure, whatever. And this movie does just kind of end. I also discovered that the movie has a lot of unused ideas and concepts and scenarios that the screenwriter originally wanted in Society, which was one of Brian Yeston's other movies, which also, spoiler alert, has to do with lots of people are bugs, body transformation stuff. So that kind of all tracks, I guess. But it's one of those, again, like, I can see why Monty Hellman immediately looked at the script and was like, fuck this, what does this have to do with Christmas? And, like, toss it, rewrite. Yeah, like, I was not expecting body horror, bug horror to be the, yeah, <laughs> the thing not at in, all. in the fourth movie. I guess you could say it's, like, a fairly interesting movie in general, but it has absolutely zero nothing to do with the larger series at hand. Because, like, I, I looked up a little bit about it. Someone likened it to, like, Halloween 3 because of lack of relation and to the rest of the franchise and all that. I mean, kind of, but Halloween 3 also, like, is a complete story. It's a complete world. This just feels like a lot of random ideas that don't quite come together. It didn't sound like 3 was worth a watch, but would you say 4 is worth a watch in any capacity? I think these are all about worth the same amount of like watch it if you feel interested but none of them are really great yeah i've heard people go to bat for like any of these sequels i think four is really the only one where people are like eh, it has nothing to do with larger series don't bother but i think they're all kind of there's pros and cons to all of them but none of them are like good ultimately when i was reading around the one that people are going up to bat for the most was five okay so yeah five is the toy maker from 1991 this one i think really does go full-blown Christmas focused a lot harder than a lot of the other sequels did. Okay. This one is directed by Martin Kittrosser, who is mostly known as a script supervisor. He's a script supervisor for Friday the 13th, 1 and 2, Deadly Blessing, Dumb and Dumber, Love and Basketball, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and literally all of Tarantino's movies. He's been the script supervisor. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, like, what a wild career. Brian Yuzna came back to produce this one, and it has a lot of the same cast and crew as the last one. Which, the movie poster, at least the one that's on the Wikipedia article for it, I kind of dig. It's totally, like, early 90s-esque, but it kind of is just a boy sitting with all these toys that all, like, have mean faces and are pouring out of the closet. It never quite gets that cool, I will say. Like, yeah, um, That's that unfortunate. That <laughs> poster is pretty rad, but it never quite gets to be that fucking cool. Yeah, because I thought it was like all his toys come to life and they all have mean faces like this and they murder the fuck out of people. That's what I was thinking it no. was. So the plot is mysterious toy maker Joe Petto. Oh, Christ. <laughs> is that is that Mickey Rooney's character? Because I know That's he's Mickey Rooney. I know he's in this one. Yeah. Yeah. So Joe Petto and his swisher swish son Swish, swish, Pino. Oh, Christ. Are creating killer toys that torture a young boy named 
Derek hey. and his family. Hey, there we go. Gonna have to watch this one now. <laughs> so yeah, what's kind of interesting is Mickey Rooney was one of the loudest celebrity voices protesting against the first movie. Blah, blah. Ban this movie. <laughs> it's a scourge on the tradition of the holiday season, blah, blah, blah. And then yet he turns around and he's in five. Clint Howard, once again, plays a crazy, seemingly homeless character named Ricky. And again, it's unclear if he's playing <laughs> Killer Ricky from two and three. But the other interesting thing is that I cannot remember if it's four or this one five. You see Silent Night, Deadly Night playing on a TV in the background of one of these movies. So, like, in-universe, that is a movie in the span of these other movies. It pulls the Halloween Which, again, yeah, yeah. makes me think that the Clint Howard Ricky has nothing to do, right, with the other Ricky. Neith Hunter from 4 also shows up and also plays a character with the same name as her character from 4, but is seemingly, again, unrelated to that character. But yeah, this one had some ridiculous kills, because it's just all these fucking toys, so it'll be shit like, oh, it's a remote control car. Oops, it is covered in spikes and blades, turns out. Who would have ever looked at this and been like, this is an appropriate toy for my child? There's a scene where Pino gives a gift to this guy, and it's like this creepy fucking like giant centipede evil demon looking plastic toy in like this big cabbage patch kids box oh geez thanks pino <laughs> yeah he gives it to the guy and the guy's like well thanks a lot this will certainly cover your rent i'm not really worried about this now whatever and of course he like puts it in the car oh my kids are gonna love this when i get home and then it gets out of the box and fucking murders him but it murders him in the best oh so it like goes into his mouth and like comes out of his eyeball Hell yeah. And, like, he wrecks his car and the car explodes. Like, it's that kind of shit. If you're going to go super wild in later sequels, that's the shit I want to yeah. see. <laughs> yeah. It, the first kill in the movie, it, again, spoiler alert, is this weird Santa Claus ball that shoots out long arm and legs and it wraps around a guy's face. Cool. But that's it. Right. Like, it just, it's like a ball on his face that's tethered to his face. And he's just running around flailing, screaming. And he dies because he, like, falls over onto a fire poker. But, like, what did the Santa ball do, right? There's some weird, like, logic gaps like that where I'm just like, oh, sure. Could the Santa ball not have a drill or a spike or a blade in it? Like, you know, the phantasm balls? No, no. Okay. It's just a Santa Claus ball that makes like an angry face. Sure. All right. Cool. Whatever. Dude, you're watching Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. You're asking a bit too much, I think. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that is it for the original sequels. They are all on Tubi. So you can check them all out there for free with ads. Once again. As of December 2nd at the time of this recording, all five entries in the Silent Night, Deadly Night franchise are available to stream on Shudder. Again, I don't think any of them are good. I think they are all interesting just because they're weird what-the-fuck kind of oddities. And I mean, if you are literally folding clothes on a weekend and have nothing better to do, fuck it, throw them on. And then lastly, I watched the remake from 2012 just 
titled Silent Night. Uh, This was directed by Stephen C. Miller. It's about a rookie cop played by Jamie King who tracks a killer Santa through her town. Malcolm McDowell plays her like sheriff and Donald Logue is another drunk curmudgeon Santa Claus in the town. Lisa Marie plays the mother to this awful fucking child that you're just delighted to see get cattle prod tased and then like stabbed to death. It's definitely, definitely tongue-in-cheek and goes way out of its way to make every character in it unlikable so that way when they do get murdered you're like yay that character sucked cool neat is it any good i'd say no (laughs) okay that's what i was thinking the whole time i enjoyed watching the old sequels more than i enjoyed watching this remake at the end of the day the remake is just a little too try hard and edgy in my opinion well it it was based off a true story that happened four years prior, from what I remember reading. Mm, I mm, I question whether that's valid because so maybe maybe not based off true story, but inspired probably is a better. In okay, well, in, inspired by, but yeah. it does replicate a lot of the kills from the original movie. Okay, and <laughs> and there's like some new ones, but they're just so over the top ridiculous. Of course, the seedy underbelly of this town is like one of the characters does pornography. And the killer shows up where they're doing a softcore photo shoot. And so it's just the killer Santa chasing this girl in her underwear around. And eventually he like picks her up and throws her into a wood chipper. You know, and it's just this girl flailing around and the camera shaking all over the fucking place. Blood shooting out of it, right? But it definitely kind of does the same. This is a revenge story. You find out why the killer Santa Claus is running around. What the motivation is is and it does turn out to be kind of this weird generational thing as well I liked the idea that it took those bits and pieces from the original movies and kind of came up with like a new slightly different take on it just everything else surrounding the movie is so ridiculous and over the top like I said there's literally a 10 year old girl who's like fuck you mom I'm not going to fucking church get your purse Brenda we're gonna go to the fucking mall I want some new shoes bitch like it's no 10 year old would fucking talk to their parent like that right or get away with that yeah, yeah and then yeah like i said immediately the kid gets cattle prodded and murdered and you're like cool that kid was a shit that's kind of what the movie's operating on is just we're gonna make everybody awful so that you feel fine when they're all brutally murdered yeah so from that to wrap things up with the original one going circling all the way back around it explores this idea that he gets us in his head that santa is a force of punishment like it's not just rewarding yeah. the good children with presents but it's punishing the naughty people i think the part i struggled with the most was honestly Pamela and I I know I'd mentioned earlier this episode I think he ties just any sexuality to naughtiness given like what he saw but the only way I can kind of I guess describe like why he went after Pamela is because anyone who's doing any of this sexual act deserves to be punished because they're naughty but like I wonder because there's a brief moment that after he kills his co-worker who is like sexually assaulting her he kind of like stops and looks at her and says I had to do it he was naughty then she like pushes him away and is like get away from me you freak you're crazy i mean yeah she responds like you would hope which is yeah 
normally the fuck yeah. that was not a you know i appreciate the help but that was not a like normal response what are you doing right yeah it almost felt like the rejection is what caused him to kill her as well and then like the other two that i can't really or not can't i do like in his own weird murder logic i guess he sees that the store owner and the older woman that also works there the reason why they need to die is because they're alcoholics like, yeah, question mark yeah even though like inadvertently the store guy was like in like that speech to him was like you're santa claus go do what santa claus does and he was like yeah maybe i will go do what santa claus does punish people for being naughty but again, I, I guess his logic doesn't have to make sense to us in the same way like the logic of Elliot Rogers doesn't make sense and is just mean and evil and violent. And see, I'm not even sure that that's where all the underlying motivation even comes from, because yeah. that's not quite how the rest of the movie goes yeah. in terms of the killings. That's why it's so maddening to like try and figure out what exactly yeah. is the linchpin and his thing. And it, I don't think the movie does it in an incompetent way. I think it does it perfectly. Purposely, there is no like logic to the madness, which I mean, that that is part of the reason why this is scary is because it is kind of incomprehensible and tough to read. Like, what is the motivation? It's just one of those instances where somebody has had a mental break snapped and like goes and does bad, violent things toward people, which happens all the time. Now, granted, there is a clear difference between like people who have mental illness sure. and then people like this. People with mental illness are more likely to be the victim of violence like this. Yeah, this is like a clear break with reality reinforced by a lot of bad upbringing and psychological trauma. Well, and it's still an 80s. Just, it's a giant mess of shit. And it is also like, that's what I was just about to say. It's an 80s. Flasher. We <laughs> don't understand really how any of this actual mental health shit works and it's just gonna be kind of a very gross stereotype and again the weird middle of the reagan years where there's a lot of weird like moralizing happening yeah so just a lot of the whole like you did bad you need to be punished and then the punishment is going to be this way overreaction yeah. to what the like bad is, right? And if you look at it through the lens of like an 80 slasher, it's just kind of an over exaggeration, not understanding of that kind of stuff. Yeah. As dark and serious and mean as this movie can be, it's still a slasher, like at the end of the day. One last thing, because I don't know if we actually went through it. The director, has he done any other horror related anything? <laughs> nope. Okay, never mind. Yep, <laughs> that's all there is to it. <laughs> yep. All right, well, cool. I don't know, I think that wraps it about up. We went from Black Christmas to Gremlins to this, so it bounced from super dark and fucked up to lighthearted, fun Gremlins to back to super dark and fucked up, so maybe we'll do a lighthearted Christmas horror next year. Yay. Yay, <laughs> happy holidays, everyone. Hell yeah. With that, we are Watch If You Dare. A horror movie podcast hosted by Movie Monster Boy, my co-host Aaron, and me, the coward, Derek, which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. We are on all the podcatchers at this point, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Good Pods, Podchaser, etc., etc. Please continue to rate, review us, and follow us along, especially on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser and also Good Pods now. You can get our social media at Watch If 
Fidere on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a Spotify music playlist that is permanently linked at the top of our Twitter and can also be accessed at our Podbean website. Check that out for like spooky tunes and stuff that's from or inspired by horror and horror movies and the genre at large. Um, Speaking of music, thank you to your little brother, Jesse, who does the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode. Check out all his music um, at Possums, Big Clown. All his stuff is on Bandcamp. I I know he, like you said, Aaron, a couple episodes ago, he's in five bands now. (laughs) Dude is always putting out music. I got a lot of shit out. Yeah, but yeah. Other than that, do you have anything else for us, Aaron, before we get off? Yeah, I've got one more thing to say. You scared, ain't ya? You should be. Christmas Eve is the scariest damn time of the year. Santa Claus only brings presents to them that's been good all year. All the other ones, all the naughty ones, he punishes. What about you, Sally? You been good all year? You see Santa Claus tonight? You better run, Sally! You better run for your life! Thanks, Grandpa. Hey, hey, yeah. There's always people who love you. They're gonna kiss you and hug you. It's always Christmas on the warm side of the door. Of the door, yeah.